Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The House of Representatives has a new speaker already taking action on Israel. How did Congressman Mike Johnson bring Republicans together after three weeks? And what's his plan for depleting government funds? Will we see a return to business as usual in Washington? A former federal prosecutor explains why he thinks we're about to see a different kind of speakership. Drama and tension in the New York courtroom. Former President Trump's team drills ex-attorney Michael Cohen. And Trump himself getting hit with his second sanction for violating a gag order. The Middle East heats up as Israel zeroes in on Hamas. A U.S. ally unexpectedly condemns Israel's operations. What country was it? And a direct warning to China. What President Biden says about the Indo-Pacific as a war rages on in the Middle East. And the latest step forward in the alliance between the U.S. and Australia. Speaker Mike Johnson. House Republicans voted unanimously to elect him this afternoon after three weeks of failed attempts to replace Kevin McCarthy. Johnson now thrown into the fire to tackle a list of pressing tasks here at home and abroad. NTD's Melina Weiskup is on Capitol Hill with more. Newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson was elected unanimously by the support of the entire Republican conference. This could be an indicator that he could be the one to bridge that gap between the most moderate wing of the party and the most conservative wing of the Republican Party. Now, he's also very new to leadership and very new to Congress, as a matter of fact. He's only a fourth term Congress member. He did serve as the vice chairman of the Republican conference. He was elected to that capacity this year. He also served as the chairman on the Republican Study Committee. But once again, very new to this leadership position. So it will be interesting to see how he treads these waters, especially with a divided Congress right now. Also, interestingly enough, he's also from Louisiana. So now we have two members of leadership himself and Steve Scalise, which is the majority leader, both from the state of Louisiana. Also, he is a very religious member of Congress, which was very apparent today throughout his speech, which he carried a very strong theme of faith. Take a look at this. So I was reminded of the scripture that says suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. What we need in this country is more hope. The, the, the people have lost their faith in our institutions. The, 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 their faith is at an all-time low. He gave a relatively short speech. It was roughly four minutes, after which he led those House members back to the floor to immediately vote on a resolution condemning the attacks from Hamas on Israel. So that was his first order of business. But the reality is Speaker Johnson comes in at a very difficult time. In addition to passing this Israel resolution, he also has to deal with the fact that he has pressure from Democrats to combine Israel aid with Ukraine aid, which Republicans are not going to be happy with. So he's going to have to figure out how to navigate these waters, as well as a really tight deadline on the government funding that runs out on November 17th, Speaker Johnson did already put out a plan for quickly passing the remainder of their appropriations bills and said that if they couldn't get everything done in time, they would try to pass a continuing resolution that is a temporary government funding bill that would expire either next January or next April, depending on what Republicans are willing to support. Now, in addition to this, he also did win the support from the most conservative wing of the party 
party by doing something interesting and something we haven't seen that has been done in the speaker's position before. That is, he said that if all appropriations bills are not passed in time by next August, they would not have their August recess. So obviously conservatives, fiscal conservatives were pretty happy about that. Take a look at what they told us. It just, we know his heart and, and we know where he's at and we know he's, he's about single, um, single issue funding bills. Everybody knows he's very different from the previous speaker who even yesterday and earlier this morning was trying to undermine this very election that every Republican voted for. Today. Look, Speaker Johnson, I think, has a instinct to want to be, as he said, from the from the uh, rostrum, a limited government conservative that believes we ought to restrain and cut spending, that we ought to do our job uh, to secure the United States. And I think uh, he was clear about that. So. So he has that solid support from the most conservative members in his party, but there's also a big question as to how he'll work with Democrats, considering that is a large part of his job right now with Democrats in control of the Senate and in control of the White House. And when I asked Denny Hoyer, which is the former leader of the Democrat Party, he said that he simply doesn't know Johnson and he's unclear exactly how Democrats will be able to work with him. But the fact that Democrats are unfamiliar with newly elected Speaker Johnson, that may work in his favor. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. What lies ahead for newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson and what does his leadership mean for Congress and the nation? We're joined by a former federal prosecutor who describes Johnson as someone who will be critical of the D.C. establishment and create a different speakership in Washington. Cash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on NTD. The House has elected a speaker, Mike Johnson. He got unanimous consent from the Republicans. This is after three weeks without a speaker. Why do you think Mike Johnson won where Scalise, Jordan and Emmer failed? Look, it, this isn't an overnight process. You know, I know Speaker Johnson. He's a great guy. We've worked together in the past. And um, in my opinion, what I think you saw is this notion that people who have been in Washington forever and co-opted by the lobbyists and defense industrial complex and big public interest, um, their tenure running Washington, D.C., at least for the Republican Party, has come to an end. And when we look back in the mirror and, and say, you know, whether or not you like what Representative Gates did or not, that was the instigating moment. And you saw a lot of people, especially in conservative media circles, rise up and actually participate in this conversation. And that's why I think you saw so many votes uh, for different candidates beforehand. And what you saw in Speaker-elect um, Mike Johnson is a different candidate emerge, uh, someone who will be critical of the establishment and who has um, in the past supported, um, you know, uh, quite arduously President Trump. And the, those other individuals don't have that track record. So it's going to be a different speakership for sure. Uh, we'll just see if he is co-opted by the swamp or he takes the swamp over. And to your point, during the 2020 election, Johnson voted against certifying the Electoral College votes in Arizona and Pennsylvania. And after Biden won the presidency, he called Trump, telling him to keep fighting. How do you see Johnson uniting the Republican Party, as it were? 
Well, the Republican Party has changed. The Republican Party has jettisoned the likes of, whether you like them or dislike them, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and other folks. The Republican Party has changed since Donald Trump became president. And a lot of people don't want to accept that, the Karl Roves of the world. But the reality is it's the right of the Republican Party to change. And what you saw today in Speaker-elect Mike Johnson is a momentous, prodigious change in the way the Republican Party is shaped. And by the way, you also saw him win by a vote margin of 220. Every single Republican voted for him without the conditions that were attached to Speaker McCarthy's bid. That must mean everyone in Congress at least has an, an, uh, a huge amount of respect for him, but believes he'll get the job done. And I think the Republican Party will continue to change. It's not unlike the Democratic Party when it changes over time. Uh, the, this is allowed to happen in this country. And, you know, when Speaker Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries and, and Secretary of State Clinton challenged the election and refused to concede it in other elections, that was their right to do so under the First Amendment freedom of speech. And that was Mike Johnson's right to do so with President Trump. And as the speaker's seat was empty for three weeks, Americans watched this chaotic process, if you will, and some became disenchanted with the Republican Party. What does Johnson have to do as speaker to win back that public trust? You know, I think it was an important civics lesson. You know, change, by, as per our constitutional founding fathers, is not overnight. Change must take time. This type of change, changing the direction of the party, began with President Trump some eight years ago. And now we have a change in the leadership of the well of Congress because of those same reasons that President Trump came in to fight for the everyday man and woman in America and not the special interest groups. And now you see the result of that change, both from the executive branch, now the legislative branch, come together. And what Speaker Johnson's going to have to do is not, you know, do the same thing over and over that Congress has done that has ticked off so many Republicans, so many conservatives. You know, no more extensive year-long continuing resolutions, no more monumental omnibus bills that fund this government when nobody has a chance to read these thousand-page documents. You know, and he's going to have to ignite these over oversight investigations that have stalled uh, somewhat with the Republican majority. Those are just some key things he's going to have to do. And, you know, one thing that I think will win over uh, Republicans immediately, make Republicans in Congress work 24-7 if it takes, through the holidays if it takes, enough of these lengthy recesses. And I think he's promised to do nearly that. Now, Kevin McCarthy came under fire for not doing enough as speaker. That was especially when it came to investigating President Biden and his family's foreign business dealings. Do you see the House being more aggressive on this front with Johnson as speaker, especially with the 2024 election race heating up? Well, that would be my advice to him. I mean, that, he, he has the majority. He's got the gavels. He can extend subpoena power to the chairman and women. He can call for um, uh, votes of contempt of Congress for individuals like Chris Ray and Merrick Garland, who have already violated congressional subpoenas. And the precedent laid out by the Democratic January 6th committee was those people get prosecuted by the DOJ. Or we'd start defunding some pieces of those organizations. So. Speaker Johnson has that ability to do that. He can empower those chairmen and chairwomen. He can make the subpoena process swifter, but he's also got to put some teeth behind it. You can issue all the subpoenas you want, and Chris Ray and Merrick Garland have basically just thrown them in the trash. And this is a federal contempt of proceeding document, and the Republicans have not acted on it. So hopefully Speaker Johnson will launch into that, because at the end of the day, what the American public deserves is the truth. Why is the FBI and DOJ hiding these documents, whether it's Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or what have you? Put it all out there so we can vote based on the truth. And Cash, you mentioned putting teeth into it. What would that look like? 
it would mean hauling in every individual that has violated a congressional subpoena that was sent out over these last nine months. The DOD has um, stiff-armed Congress along with the intelligence community. All of these individual entities, agencies, are supposed to be subservient to the congressional oversight that the Constitution mandates. But that script has flipped under Kevin McCarthy, and we have but ceded away, the Republicans, the power um, of that constitutional oversight. And I think it needs to be desperately returned because so many Republicans and so many Americans are looking to get this corruption out of D.C., and the only way to do it is to stop hiding the documentation and start showing us the documentation, and then stop lighting taxpayer dollars on fire with these government-funded boondoggles and extended CRs. So he's got a lot of work to do. Uh, it's not an envious job, but he is a great guy um, from my time knowing him, and um, it, it looks like he's up to the task. Akash Patel, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. A judge hits former President Trump with a $10,000 fine. It's the second sanction for violating the gag order. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards brings more of the details. Former President Trump took the stand Wednesday for a brief hearing on whether or not he violated a New York gag order. Judge Arthur Angeron, who is presiding over the civil fraud case, accused Trump of making a disparaging remark about his law clerk. The judge read an article by the Associated Press about comments made by Trump during a court break. According to the article, Trump said, a person who is very partisan sitting alongside the judge, perhaps more partisan than he is. Trump testified that he made the statement, but said he was referring to the witness, Michael Cohen. But the judge didn't believe him. Trump's attorneys pointed out that it was very unusual for a law clerk to sit next to a judge and that it was distracting to see the law clerk writing notes, rolling her eyes, and whispering to the judge. They said the influence coming from the bench was completely inappropriate. The judge saying that's how he does things and defending his law clerk. After further consideration, the judge said the $10,000 sanction he ordered would stand. Trump's attorneys said they will appeal. In other courtroom action, Michael Cohen returns to the stand to face pointed questions about his motives for turning on former President Trump. Cohen, defiant and combative, often making his own objections to defense questions. Trump's team challenged Cohen's credibility. Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, first established that Cohen had lied before. So what just happened, as you know, is the witness was fully impeached. He admitted that he lied. Cohen admitted that he lied to another New York judge when he pleaded guilty to tax fraud. He just admitted that he lied. Whether or not Cohen is a liar is central to the defense because he's a key witness for the state. The state began investigating Trump's finances after Cohen testified to Congress in 2019 that Trump inflated his wealth. Haba confronted him with his past praises of Trump from 2011 to 2017. For example, Cohen admitted to saying in a July 13, 2016 tweet, thank you and believe wholeheartedly that only Trump will make America great again. Cohen also admitted to saying in April 2011, it's very, very surreal. I've been admiring Donald Trump since I was in high school. As for Cohen's adversarial relationship with Trump in recent years, he admitted to having a financial incentive to criticize his former boss and has been criticizing Trump to the media, in podcasts, on social media, and in books that he's written. 
In other action, the judge absolutely denied the defense's request for a dismissal based on the witness's testimony, saying there was enough evidence against Trump to fill the courtroom. Arlene Richards, NTD News. The Middle East is on edge as Israeli forces continue striking Hamas targets. Israel says it's preparing for a ground offensive, but a U.S. ally is opposing Israel's operations in Gaza. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. In a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. This video shows Hamas terrorists trying to infiltrate Israel by sea. But Israeli forces quickly neutralized the threat. The video released by Israeli forces on Tuesday also shows them striking other Hamas targets, including a weapon storage facility. The IDF spokesperson on Wednesday said Hamas terrorists are taking advantage of the Gazan people. They are using your homes, schools, hospitals, underground, underneath your homes, next to hospitals and schools. They are hiding there. For your safety, don't let them use you. Go south, south of Wadi Gaza. Also on Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel has already killed thousands of terrorists and Israeli forces are currently preparing for a ground offensive. According to the Hamas-run health ministry, more than 6,500 Palestinians have been killed and over 16,000 wounded. More than 1,400 people in Israel have been killed, most of whom were killed when Hamas terrorists conducted a surprise attack on people attending a music festival on October 7th. The war is now in its 19th day since that terrorist attack, and Israeli forces are determined to defeat Hamas and ensure that another Hamas terrorist attack can never happen again. But some world leaders are critical of Israel's operations, including Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. Israel's attacks on Gaza, both in terms of those who carry them out and in terms of those who support them, are a situation that signify both murderousness and mental illness. He also shared his view of Hamas. Hamas. Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but a liberation and Islamic fighters group that leads a struggle to protect its lands and citizens. But family members of the hostages in Hamas captivity don't see it that way. And the narrative that Hamas are fighting for freedom is just false. Hamas is uh, fighting other religions and everyone who believes in them and is willing to kill them and conquer them. And uh, just like we saw in Europe the last week, in France, where a teacher is, uh, was stabbed, or in Brussels, where, someone, where two people were shot. Also speaking on Wednesday, Egyptian President Abdul Fattah al-Sisi warned his military not to get involved in the war. He told them not to let the illusion of power drive them to a decision they would later regret. Egypt remains a vital corridor for humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden today sending a direct warning to Beijing as he welcomes the Australian Prime Minister to the White House. The two leaders vowing to uphold peace in the Indo-Pacific amid wars in Europe and the Middle East. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. 
As tensions rise in the Middle East, President Biden today stressing the strategic importance of the Indo-Pacific. He tells Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese that their alliance is in an anchor to peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. And Biden directly warning Beijing that its latest aggressive actions in the South China Sea could trigger the involvement of U.S. troops. Just this past week, the PRC vessels acted dangerously and unlawfully. Any attack on the Filipino aircraft vessels or armed forces will invoke our mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. Biden says he's not looking for conflicts, but both leaders emphasize the need to compete with Beijing. Biden also vowed to get more funding for the AUKUS deal to get Australia nuclear-powered submarines, a move viewed as another bid to counter China's military ambitions in the Pacific. Meanwhile, as Israel prepares for a ground offensive into Gaza, President Biden today lays out this as his vision about what future he seeks. Israelis and Palestinians equally deserve to live side by side, ensuring Hamas can no longer terrorize Israel. And while Biden urges Israel to be incredibly careful to focus on going after Hamas and avoid hurting civilians, he says he has, quote, no confidence in the casualty numbers being reported by the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Coming up, California's governor meets with China's leader Xi Jinping. We'll have more on what they discussed and why. Investigating religious persecution around the world. Why do communist countries actively oppose religious practices? Find out what lawmakers and witnesses say. And a pilot accused of trying to cut a plane's engine mid-flight. He is now in court where new documents say he was on hallucinogenic mushrooms. More shortly, here on NTD News. Welcome back. The California governor met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping today. It's part of the governor's week-long trip focused on climate issues and cooperation. NTD's David Lam has more on the significance of this visit. California Governor Gavin Newsom met with China leader Xi Jinping and other Chinese officials in Beijing Wednesday. Um, I don't think there's a more essential relationship. There will not be one more essential than the relationship we form together, the United States and China, in our lifetimes. Newsom's office says the governor discussed climate action, economic development, cultural exchange, human rights concerns, and democracy. He's the first governor to visit China in more than four years, and the first to meet with Xi Jinping since former Governor Brown in 2017. The Epic Times senior investigative reporter tells NTD, well, Newsom is really there trying to uh, get Xi Jinping to come to the APEC meeting next month. So uh, Biden really wants to meet with Xi Jinping because the escalated provocative behavior of the Chinese military uh, in Taiwan Strait around Taiwan. Xi Jinping said that in China-U.S. relations, China is holding a principle of coexistence and win-win cooperation. But can the U.S. and China have mutual economic goals? Last year, uh, the, uh, the Global Climate Change uh, Summit, uh, Biden tried to set the ending day for coal consuming. But guess what? Xi Jinping didn't even come. 
Now, uh, it's easier to understand by looking at China as, uh, as the biggest coal consumer, biggest coal importer, and biggest coal producer. China accounts for almost a third of the world's total greenhouse gas emissions, and approximately half of that comes from their power sector. The country still adds new coal plants every year. Newsom also signed a new climate-focused Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, to advance carbon neutrality and clean energy. The governor and his Chinese counterparts touched upon human rights issues, including Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, and Taiwan. Another topic was the fentanyl crisis and China's role in precursor chemicals. It's uh, there are international Chinese um, mafia groups behind all this smuggling and this uh, drug uh, trafficking, all these issues. Next month, world leaders are expected to meet at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, APEC, scheduled for San Francisco. David Lam, NTD News, California. Investigating religious persecution around the world, the House Oversight Committee today holding a hearing focused in part on the communist suppression of religion. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the highlights. Amazingly, despite the fall of the Soviet Union and the West's victory at the end of the Cold War, there are a number of communist countries left around the world. The president of the Religious Freedom Institute testifying before House lawmakers on Wednesday. He says communist regimes usually don't tolerate religious practices. That's because communists require allegiance to the state from its citizens, not allegiance to God. Religious people are often seen as lacking allegiance because Christians, Muslims, Jews, and other religious people have a higher authority that they uh, worship and that they hold to. So this is why China cracks down on Uyghurs, Falun Gong. He then went on to say that Chinese leader Xi Jinping especially has been restricting religious and spiritual movements recently, giving the example that no CCP official can be a publicly observant person of faith. The hearing also touched on religious persecution in Nigeria. Radical Islamist groups there are targeting Christians and others. The persecution of Christians and moderate Muslims is driven by extremist groups there, Boko Haram, uh, ISIS uh, in that region and the Fulani, that they're attacking these Christian villages because of their faiths. The hearing also mentioned issues here in America. A leaked memo previously showed that the U.S. Embassy in a Caribbean country had pushed for a political candidate who was pro-abortion. One witness said that because of such actions from the U.S., some religious communities are now more hostile to America and its policies. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. An airline pilot is now in court. He's accused of trying to cut a plane's engines midair while off-duty. New court documents show he told police he had recently taken psychedelic mushrooms as his mental health worsened. Here's NTD's Eileen Ang with more. State prosecutors in Oregon filed 83 counts of attempted murder against 44-year-old Alaska Airlines pilot Joseph David Emerson on Tuesday. His attorney has entered not guilty pleas on his behalf. Federal prosecutors charged Emerson with interfering with the flight crew. The charge can carry up to 20 years in prison. Court documents show Emerson told police he had been struggling with depression after a friend recently died. He said he took psychedelic mushrooms about 48 hours before he attempted to cut the engines. He also said he had not slept in more than 40 hours. 
Neither the gate agents nor flight crew noticed any signs of impairment that may have barred him from the flight. An FBI agent wrote in a probable cause affidavit in support of the federal charge that Emerson said it was his first time taking mushrooms. One of his neighbors in Pleasant Hill, California, finds it hard to believe that a family-oriented gentleman would do such a thing. Right now, my question is, did he do it? Or was it a joke? And they they took it the wrong way? I don't know. But it's, it's one of those questions. I don't see him with his beautiful family risking it. How can he do that when he knows he has a beautiful family at home? Emerson was arrested Sunday night after the flight crew reported that he attempted to shut down the engines on a Horizon Air flight from Everett, Washington to San Francisco while riding in the extra seat in the cockpit. The plane was diverted to Portland, where it landed safely with more than 80 people on board. The FBI affidavit said Emerson tried to grab two red handles that would have activated the plane's fire suppression system and cut off fuel to its engines. Flight attendants placed Emerson in wrist restraints and seated him in the rear of the aircraft. Alaska Airlines said Tuesday that Emerson had been relieved of all duties. Emerson will remain in state custody pending an initial appearance in U.S. District Court in Portland. Coming up, Iran is threatening people within America's own borders with assassination and kidnapping. The survivor of several such attempts tells Congress her story. Who's leaving the U.S. may be as important as who's coming in, according to a security expert. How the U.S. may be helping terrorists in Iran's nuclear program. And police arrest a man for breaking into a California home and threatening to kill the family. He reportedly shouted free Palestine during the incident. Details on this and more when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The House is back on its feet again. Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson swore in as the new speaker. His first move leading a vote on a resolution backing Israel and condemning Hamas. Former President Trump was hit with another gag order by a New York judge. Meanwhile, his legal team questioned his ex-attorney, Michael Cohen, on why he turned against Trump. The Middle East still on edge as Israeli forces continue striking Hamas targets. As Israel gears up for a ground attack, Turkey, a U.S. ally, is opposing the operation. President Biden sent out a direct warning to Beijing as he welcomes the Australian Prime Minister to the White House. The two leaders vow to uphold peace in the Indo-Pacific. Iran isn't just funding Hamas in the Middle East. It's also threatening Americans within our own borders. During a House hearing today, an Iranian-American activist discussed the multiple assassination attempts she has survived. Here's more. As an American citizen, I don't feel safe here at home anymore. My family doesn't feel safe anymore. Masih Alinejad is an Iranian-American activist. She was forced to leave Iran for being critical of the regime, and she now lives in the U.S., where she fears for her life. Iranian regime were plotting to kidnap me and take me from Brooklyn by a speedboat 
to a cargo ship bound for Venezuela and then to Iran. To you, maybe it's a scary movie, but to us, this is the reality. They did that to my colleague in France and they executed him in Iran. Elena Jad said she's had to move over a dozen times under FBI supervision, and she believes the Iranian regime is responsible. Elena Jad says the Biden administration's response has been inadequate because it isn't holding Iran accountable. She says these threats are national security threats. The Iranian regime's threats to the homeland are real and are growing. They've sought to conduct cyber attacks on our state and local governments and private industry. They've plotted to target and assassinate individuals inside the United States, including former Trump officials. Congressman Mark Green says that a record number of illegal immigrants are entering the U.S. through the southern border. He's concerned about how Iran could take advantage of that and infiltrate the country to commit acts of terrorism. Former State Department official Nathan Sales believes Iran may have already done so. Iranian-linked terrorists have been found in the United States. I mentioned Hezbollah, 128 Hezbollah operatives arrested over the years by the FBI. Within that population of however many millions or hundreds of thousands of known gotaways, um, we should not assume that they are all perfectly clean. Sales says the Iranian regime hides behind proxies instead of doing things themselves. These proxies include terrorist groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iraqi militias. Witnesses at the hearing said Iran also uses criminal organizations, like the European crime syndicate that tried to kill Masi Alinejad, and the Mexican drug cartels that tried to kill John Bolton. Faye Quarter, NTD News. All this while Iran continues to develop its nuclear weapons program. How is sensitive technological information flowing to Iran and what can the U.S. do to address the threat? We spoke with a retired special agent and diplomat and author of the book Switched On. Eric Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Great to be with you. Thank you. With the Israel-Hamas war ongoing, there's been a lot of scrutiny of Iran possibly supporting the Hamas terrorist group. And now this comes after the recent Iran hostage swap, where we also unfroze $6 billion. Now, the U.S. administration is saying Iran can't access those funds due to current events. How do you see the Iran deal fitting in with this war in Israel? Well, you know, I think it's a travesty that um, we did this deal. Um, you know, Iran has declared war against Israel and the U.S. They have, they're responsible for the deaths of dozens of U.S. Soldier, soldiers in Iraq. Um, and we should not be negotiating with a state sponsor of terror. It, it only emboldens them. And we see what they're doing today. They have proxies all around the Middle East. They have militias uh, some 19 militia groups all over the Middle East uh, targeting the U.S., targeting U.S. servicemen, we essentially are at war. They declared war against us, and we need to take the gloves off against Iran and start taking the threat seriously before it's too late. And Eric, on the point of negotiations, the U.S. has celebrated the Americans we got back, but what about the Iranians we released? What do we know about them? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. You know, I, I don't think it was a fair, fair, fair deal. I don't think Donald Trump would have settled for this deal because, you know, we we essentially gave to Iran international arms traffickers who were providing sensitive military technology for their WMD programs. 
that's weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, chemical, missile technology, that that is facing us, that it's that we are the target of those WMD weapons in Israel. And so these individuals should not have been released. They should have been charged with espionage because they harmed the interests of the U.S. They were providing sensitive military technology to Iran. And we see today some of that technology is being used today against U.S. servicemen in, in, in drones, in missiles. Uh, we think about border security as just inbound. We need to think about border security as what's leaving America, destined for terrorist countries such as Iran. And on the point of the technology leaving the country, you mentioned these hostages who were released. How concerned should we be about the information they brought back with them to Iran? Well, yeah, I mean, we know that that these individuals were agents of the Iranian government. They were actively pursuing WMD technology. And so we, we should be very concerned about the agents, those five agents uh, that we released. But even further, there are hundreds today, as I speak, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI have hundreds of open, ongoing cases against Iranians and Chinese individuals working to procure WMD, WMD materials here in the U.S. And that should be a great concern to all Americans. And in terms of this war in Israel, there's talks of it potentially escalating. Could Iran actually create nuclear weapons and sidestep the Iran nuclear deal? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think this is part of a distraction campaign by the by the Iranians. We're focusing on, of course, you know, Israel and Gaza. The Iranians WMD program doesn't stop. You know, does anyone's guess how close they are to developing the nuclear weapon? Um, they have the missile capability. Um, they have other WMD materials. Um, and so we should be very concerned about the fact that the Iranians um, potentially will get involved in this conflict conflict directly. We know that they are involved with this conflict today via Hezbollah. We know that the Hutus in Yemen are on their side. They have approximately one million man army. Uh, that's total with active duty and reserves. So, you know, it's, it's a serious threat that globally everyone on this planet should be concerned about because, um, you know, Iran, Iran may use nuclear weapons. And on top of that, we also have Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's calling Iran, Russia and China the new axis of evil. Given this technology that's leaving the country and going to these countries, what must the U.S. do to step up to that threat? Well, we, we certainly need more resources here in America, um, especially with the Department of Homeland Security and FBI. Um, we need to start prosecuting these individuals that we apprehend here in the U.S. and globally and start prosecuting them seriously and charge them with espionage. And so the Department of Justice really needs to take off the gloves and say to individuals, if you come to America, and you try to attempt to steal 
sensitive military technology for state sponsors or terror, you will be charged with espionage and you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And if found guilty, you will face either life in prison or the death penalty. That certainly will deter some individuals from coming to America and stealing sensitive military technology. Eric, Karen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Police arrest a man for breaking into a Southern California home and threatening to kill the family. NTD's Christina Corona hears more from the homeowner at the scene. We're here in Studio City where a man was arrested this morning as he attempted to break into a family home on the 3000 block of Laurel Canyon. Mendel Myers, the owner of the home, recalls the terrifying incident while his pregnant wife and children were inside. 5 a.m. my wife woke me up. We were in the master bedroom and the door, we hear somebody in the door try to break the door. I jumped to the bed, the door is open. And so the, the guy tried to get into the house. I push him outside of the, of the door and the door is break from the bottom. So you push him out. So he started to scream free Palestine, Israeli people kill people, and he went to the corner, to the house, to the property in the back of the backyard, and the neighbor opened the flashlight on him, and he started to scream also to the, for the neighbor, free Palestine, free Palestine, uh, uh, Israeli kill people, we need to kill the Israeli people. Myers explains that he didn't see a weapon on the suspect, but pushed the intruder upon entering, resulting in injuries to his hands. He screamed like crazy and he, he looked like a very scary man. Myers tells us he believes his family was targeted because they are Jewish. Yeah, because I, this guy, he was in this house one year ago. He came in here. I didn't was in the house. My wife spoke to him from the window. And, uh, and he told him, oh, you're Israeli, and uh, the Jewish take the money from all the people, and stuff like this, he's talking to them. My wife didn't pay attention for that, and, and he, he left. Once officers arrived, the suspect was taken into custody without further incident. The charges the suspect may face and his name were not yet disclosed by the police as of midday Wednesday. Throughout the arrest, he continued to chant Free Palestine and Brown Lives Matter. Police originally were calling it burglary, but are now calling it a hate crime investigation. Christina Corona, NTD News, Studio City. Coming up, will your iPhone soon be less expensive and easier to fix? Apple announces its support for a right-to-repair bill. Find out what that means for you. And in sports news, what does Bud Light's attempt to reclaim their market share have anything to do with mixed martial arts? Find out when we come back. Welcome back. It may soon get easier for you to fix your iPhone. Apple said that it's going to support a right to repair bill in the U.S. This could be welcome news for anyone using an iPhone. We spoke to NTD business host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. 
To begin, how could repairs become easier? Right. Uh, so first of all, Tiffany, uh, just a little bit of background here. This news comes actually after years of complaints uh, from consumer advocates that Apple's devices are difficult and expensive to fix. Um, Apple has built a reputation, actually, for high product repair costs. I mean, Tiff, I don't know if you have ever tried bringing your phone to an Apple store. It could cost you hundreds of dollars to fix in some cases. So following all those complaints, Apple Tuesday said it's going to make available parts, tools, documentation needed to fix its iPhones and computers to independent uh, repair shops and consumers nationwide. So, you know, this could be a step in the right direction for Apple, but we still have to see if it actually makes a difference to consumers. We still have to wait and see if there's going to be a, diff a difference with people's experience in the real world. Because um, actually Apple in the past has opposed independent repair services. Um, that's through limiting their access to instructions and components needed to repair the products. But it seems like this stance has changed recently. Actually, this bill that Apple supports is the Biden administration's broader effort to promote economic competition. Hmm. And can you tell us more about that, the Biden administration's initiative to encourage economic competitiveness? Sure. All of this uh, is part of a broader push by President Joe Biden to promote competition and crack down on so-called junk fees and other actions that potentially may increase prices for consumers. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission Chair Linda Kahn says restrictive practices used across industries uh, raise costs for consumers, uh, stifled competition, innovation, closed off businesses, opportunities um, for independent shops, uh, repair shops, you know, along those lines. Uh, so this is a state level right to repair law, and it's seeking to assist consumers in cost effective device repairs uh, using tools and components uh, supplied by the original manufacturers. Uh, what this does is uh, it enables consumers to bypass challenging and costly repair procedures. So, you know, of course, it's not just Apple then uh, that this uh, right to repair bill is targeting. Linda Khan says that uh, they've actually heard from healthcare workers and hospitals as well, uh, being worried uh, that they would be unable to fix, uh, for example, a ventilator. Uh, because the manufacturer was seeking to deny access to repair it. Wow, quite fascinating. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at how Bud Light is attempting to win its fans back. That's right, Tiff. Bud Light, the beer brand whose sales have tanked since it aligned with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney, has now partnered with Mixed Martial Arts League UFC. The deal is worth a reported $100 million over six years. Now the Bud Light boycott has been very well publicized and extremely costly. The popular drink has been a top-selling beer in America for more than two decades before choosing Mulvaney to represent them last April. The outrage was immediate, spreading all across Twitter and within a few months, they were no longer number one. Which begs the question of whether UFC will suffer some kind of backlash or will fans forgive and forget. Their next event, UFC 295 in November, is already without headliner John Jones, who suffered an injury in practice on Monday and is sidelined now for eight months. 
And in the NBA, James Harden has reportedly returned to the Philadelphia 76ers after missing several practices over the past week, according to ESPN. The team had previously said his absence was a personal matter. Now, earlier this summer, Harden called Sixers president of basketball operations Daryl Morey a, quote, liar at a shoe event in China. The 10-time All-Star has reportedly sought a trade this offseason, which has become a familiar refrain for him after allegedly doing so in previous stops with Brooklyn and Houston. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just one hockey game. It's the New Jersey Devils hosting the Washington Capitals as the Alex Ovechkin watch is on. Just 70 more goals for him to catch the great one Wayne Gretzky on the all-time list. And finally, in the NBA, a dozen games are on, highlighted by a Spurs-Mavericks contest, where Rookie of the Year favorite Victor Wembanyama makes his much-anticipated debut. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.